My name is Lazek, and I will be talking to Noah Gonault about embracing uncertainty in leadership and crafting holistic product strategies. You're an expert in product market fit, uh, among other things, and I'd like to start with that. Uh, can you describe your approach to helping companies define their strategy and reach product market fit? Sure. So I think the, f the first thing to know about product market fit is that it's a journey that takes a long time. It's not something, it's not a goal that you hit and that's it. You can lose product market fit after you already have it because markets change. And once you have product market fit with a certain segment or for a certain product, you want to expand. So you expand to a different segment. That's a whole new product market fit journey. So it's basically product market fit is a never ending. It's not an overnight thing. It's not an overnight, but it's also, it's not a phase. Even though for startups, it would feel like it because at some point you're getting into growth, but it's the essence of chasing product market fit remains with you no matter how large the company is because you always want to innovate. You always want to bring new stuff. So you're always somewhere on a journey to product market fit. So I think that's... Even with established products. Yes, because what used to work doesn't necessarily continue to work. And you can, you know, the whole story about how Netflix killed Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster had amazing product market fit but lost it because of technology, because of new competitors. So you always have to be on the watch to see what's going on. And also the way to expand is to solve a problem for a certain profile. And once you succeed there, you want to expand. So you go to the next profile and what the next profile needs isn't necessarily the same exactly as what the previous segment needed. And therefore it really is an ongoing endless effort. Now, in order to reach product market fit, many companies focus on what they build on the product side, but it's extremely important to look outwards and see what, what the market really needs, what your potential customers would want, not, not even just in terms of which product, but what problems they have. So it's, it's important to focus not just on, on what you build, but also on the market outside. And in a way, why would someone even care about what you have to offer? Why would they want it? What is it that they're currently dealing with that is difficult for them, that is painful for them, or just something that they want to solve that, that is urgent or something like that? It needs to be a real problem that they want to solve. And then you can think about whether or not your product is the right fit for, for what they need to solve. But the need has to be there. You cannot generate a need. The next thing in, in, um, on this journey is that you need to understand that you need to go deep into understanding this need and the profile of this segment that you're targeting. So many people, when, when they think about an ideal customer profile, they think about hard facts, about things that one could probably segment on LinkedIn, like company size. If you're a B2B startup, you would say, I am targeting companies of this and that kind and, uh, and this and that size, and maybe geographic location or industry or something like that. But first of all, companies never have problems. It's the people within them that have problems and it's the people within them that actually buy the products. So you have to understand the people and understanding the people is not just, okay, so I'm selling to the chief security officer of a 50 people company. Because for example, this is an example from a, from a startup that um, I helped building their product strategy. They realized they were a cybersecurity startup and they realized that for what they do, which is fairly advanced in terms of today's market, it's not like table stakes. It's not something that every security officer knows that they need something in that area and they just need to pick the right vendor. It's fairly innovative. It's a new domain that is just um, on the rise in terms of cybersecurity. And they realized that Chief security officers who have who came from compliance background, and it turns out that there are many uh, many of those, tend to have a hard time understanding or, or deciding to go forward with what they have to offer, because maybe they're more conservative, they're not always forward looking. That's what kind of the things that they were aware of, and chief security officers who. Um, grew professionally on the pure security side, always looking to see what 
can come next, which attack would come next, and how do I prevent that, turned out to be a better profile. So it's kind of at that level that you want to be able to understand your customers and profile them. Of course, it's not something that you can then tell marketing, okay, search them on LinkedIn one by one and, and find them. But there are other ways to target them specifically. And more importantly, you, once you understand who you are after and why would they care about your product and where would the budget come from and why would they decide to spend that budget on your product, it's much easier to run the conversation once the lead is there. And they, they feel that you understand them and you build your product to actually answer what they need and not just provide the technical features that would theoretically do what they want. Um, I've developed a model for uh, product market fit. I call it the product circuit model, so we can talk about that for a few minutes. Basically, um, you know, if you're looking for product management, uh, if you search that on Google and you go to image search, you get always this Venn diagram with three uh, circles. One is uh, customers, one is um, technology, and one is uh, business. And in my model, I still use these nodes, I would say, but my model has four parts and not just three. So I have separated the market, which is the business where things really happen, from the problem. I think to reach product market fit, the problem needs its own focus. It's a big part of, the, um, of your success or your ability to succeed to find a good problem to solve. So the problem gets its own focus. And I've also separated the product from the solution. So the solution is kind of your approach. Someone has a problem. The problem is, is uh, a, always a customer's problem. Who are the people? Who is the specific person that has this problem? problem and what's their profile? And then the solution is not your product, it's your approach. So for example, if the problem is that your company is growing and you're at a certain operational function and before the company grew, you were able to, to do everything by yourself. You were able to control and really um, make sure that everything is done by the book and nothing falls between the cracks and everything is done properly. As a company grows, things become messier. Right? There are more people involved, there are more processes, the processes that used to work no longer work at a certain scale, and, um, and, and perhaps things are a little bit out of control. And in that sense, the solution is not the product that you bring. The solution would be something like, if I ask those people what they want, if a fairy would come, or a genie, and would give them a few wishes, what would they ask for? They would never ask for a product. They would ask for something magical. They would ask to magically solve the problem by, I don't know, if only I could know exactly the status of everything that is happening under my domain. If only I could make sure the people know exactly what they need to do and, and be sure that when they're done, I will know. This is how they will speak. They will never say, I need a reporting system. They will never say, I need um, a dashboard. What they would say is they would talk in terms of the solution in a way, in way that is related to the problem. And therefore, the solution is, uh, is separate from the product and it has its own importance. And then after the solution, you can decide what is the right product to actually deliver that, uh, that solution. And in terms of product market fit, you always start with a problem. You want to make sure that this problem really is a problem of real people, I would say, and enough of them, because otherwise you don't really have a market. If you have only a few, you won't be able to create a larger company. And then, so you start with a problem and you, you try to clarify it, you try to create a good understanding of the problem, and then you go to the market. The industry calls this step validation, right? To go and talk to people and, and validate your problem with them. I really don't like the word validation because it has a scent of certainty. It feels like, so I've defined my problem. I went to the market. I validated the problem. Now I know for sure. And that's never going to be the case with product market fit or with startups or with technology products in general. You can never know for sure. You need to switch 
your mindset from validation, from getting assurance to risk management. You go to the market to research and understand if you are certain enough to move forward because the other alternative is to be stuck in research forever. So you, you go to the market purely for research and I'll, I'll use the word validation because that's the term the industry uses, but it's basically for risk management. When, when you feel that the risk is contained and you can move forward, it's the time to move forward. And then you go to the solution before you even talk about the product. It's your approach, as I explained earlier. And then you take both your problem and your solution to the market again to do another round of validation, validation or risk management to understand. So if people have this problem, maybe they don't like your approach. Maybe they don't believe that this is the right solution. Before you even developed your product, they don't believe in the entire thing. You want to be able to talk about the solution in a way that makes sense for them and in a way that is compelling and that they feel that, yes, this is what I really need. Now you've convinced me that, that this is what I really need. Okay, now I want to see your product. And then you can build your product and then take that, of course, to the market again and see if that works. And at each such validation phase, you take all the components to the market. So it could be that only when your product is ready, you realize that the problem was not well-defined and you need to sort of refine it so that all the dots are connected so that the solution makes sense in actually solving the problem as your customers see it so that the product actually delivers the value that your customers really need. They all have to work together. So whenever you do your validation, you have to take them uh, together to the market and rethink everything, see that everything works from, from the get-go. So that's the model. It's kind of back and forth between each component and the market. And the reason I call it the product circuit is that uh, I, I drew it in a diagram. It's like an electric circuit with a switch. And the first time that you release your product to the market, the switch is open. It's, it, it never just magically works. You know, traffic comes, they get it, they love the product, they keep using it, they pay happily. It just never happens. You, you always have to go back and forth. So the switch, as you refine and as you connect the dots and you go through those cycles over and over again, the electric switch kind of closes until when, when it's closed, there is lights on. That's like the product market fit sort of uh, achievement. And then you go to the next product market fit because that's how it always works. Okay. It can also also go off at the certain point in time. Yeah, you can realize that this is just not not connecting, right? The the product that I had in mind, after the light is on, the switch can reopen. Exactly. Um, and how, if I may ask, how can you tell you are certain enough or uh, how can you tell that the circuit has closed? Uh, it's, it seems subtle in many, in many cases. First of all, it is. It is subtle. There are a few ways. I'll start with, with uh, the latter. So how can you tell that the circle is closed? It's um, what you feel is that you're growing beyond your capacity. If it works, you will have more demand than you can probably supply. And then you have growth pains. Now, it could be that you have a very initial product market fit with, with a certain very specific profile, and then you nail it for them, but then you have to, to find product market fit again. It's like it grows and then it stops. And then you have to um, find the next level of product market fit. And again, you, you, you search for it and then you start growing and then it stops. So it's, it could be like those uh, stairs. It's not like one time, okay, once I started growing, I have product market fit, I'm good, I can... There might be several reasons for that, right? The number of people that has this problem that you identified and where you have product market fit might be just not enough to run a business. Or that may be one of the cases, right? There's also be a case uh, we just want to grow uh, even faster or being competitive, etc. So there's many reasons to keep on exploring. That's my understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And and it it usually starts this way. Your Your initial product market fit is usually suitable for a very narrow segment because these are the ones who would come to you first and have this need and want to experiment with a very young product that is probably not perfect yet and suffers from many uh, infancy problems. But they would be willing to do that because they have a very specific problem that this solves. 
And at some point, you might not be able to get more people like them because they are really a very small segment. So you would need to expand and everything would need to expand. So the, the problem might be a bigger or a different problem. The solution might be different. The product might be different. I can give an example from Airbnb, for example. So when Airbnb started, first of all, they started with their own problem, not with a market problem. They had to pay rent and they had like so much student debt that they couldn't pay rent. The, the, their owner, the, their apartment owner just raised the rent and they realized that they're not going to be able to pay it and pay the bills. So they needed some way to make money. And that's when they came up with the idea of um, renting their own living room. That's where the name Airbnb, by the way, came from. I was always sure that Airbnb stands for air because you fly somewhere and then you go to a bed and breakfast. But no, not the case. It's literally an air bed, which is what they had in their living room and breakfast. That's the name of the company to date. Yeah. So, and then it worked. And then they said, oh, we might be onto something, right? And started, the company started built. Their, their solution was a marketplace. Uh, or their solution was to let people rent rooms in their uh, in their houses. It was no longer necessarily a living room. If they had a guest room, it was also fine. And the product was a marketplace. And but the problem was for people traveling to conferences who can't find uh, affordable hotels, because that's the use case that they ran into initially. But then they realized that. People come there even when there are no conferences. So they said, okay, so there are some people who like, just don't like sleeping in hotels. They prefer the local experience. In terms of the solution or the product, it didn't change much, but it changed the problem and how they approach things and how they talk about things. And they were able to reach a much larger audience. So that's an example of expanding your product market fit beyond a certain phase, even if on the product side, not much changes. I also love the example with the cybersecurity background of the end user or the, or the decision maker, whether it's some uh, or, or pure security. Uh, pure security. Like, yeah, very like, so that's a great example, by the way. The thing about product strategy, everything we talk about here, like connecting all those dots, that's basically product strategy. And the thing about it is that it needs to make sense. And in order for it to make sense, you really have to go deep enough to be able to tell the story end to end so that one step leads to the other. And it's like, it's a little bit like um, proving a math theorem or something. One step leads to the other, and then you can understand why someone with a security background would be more willing to um, put budget and put effort on a new attack that is supposedly coming down their way rather than someone who cares about more about compliance and wants their, um, the, their product or, or, or their network to be fairly protected for, for the books, I would say, right? But you cannot explain that if you do not add that color, if you do not add that level of detail. And when you do, at first it wouldn't make sense and that's where all the blind spots are. And then you, you it suddenly starts to shed some light on why things don't work, on why someone who's coming over, they have a very different mindset. They wouldn't even care or bother to go to the next step. And when you're able to get into their heads and sort of explain where they're coming from, it becomes very easy to see what is the natural next step and what their concerns are. And the discussion, even between the people within the company, Right? If, if you're a startup, even between the startup employees or the startup leadership gets much more interesting. And that's where collaboration uh, rises because suddenly as product, I can talk to marketing in a level that makes sense for them. The messaging, the positioning, it all starts to, uh, to really make sense. And of course, if it doesn't make sense on paper, the odds that it would work in the real world are really low. So you want to spend time actually connecting the dots and explaining to yourself why should something work? And then you can test it and see if it really works. Sometimes it wouldn't. 
But if you don't have a solid theory on why it should work, the odds that you'll just hit it spot on coincidentally are really, really low. We just never have. If uh, I can do one more follow-up on the, uh, the compliance uh, or security background, how can one discover that subtle uh, nuanced uh, difference? M my guess would be that you can do like uh, talk with many people and try to figure out why those individuals decided and other, other ones didn't, or you can talk with those individuals. Are there any, how did the guys in the startup figure that out? So it, go, it goes back to the product circuit model, because if you remember at every step of the way, you, you have a theory or even a working product, and then you take it to the market to test it. So you're always meeting the market. And initially they didn't know that. So they aimed for all chief security officers in, a pro, in, in companies of a certain profile. And the search for product market fit is kind of walking with a metal detector and you see where, uh, where it's on, where it says there is something here. So as you go and you meet the market and you meet many people, you can start distinguishing the ones that like it, that where the message resonates, the ones that are willing to move forward, the ones that are able to secure a budget from the ones who don't. Once you have a few of those, you go back to your office and you start thinking, okay, what is the common denominator between those who worked? Let's try to build a profile. And now let's see if that profile really continues to working. So our assumption at this point is that those who come from a security background find it easier to, to work with us or understand the importance more easily. That's currently, that's just an assumption. But as you go again to the market, with that assumption, you can see if it works because you, you can you can see if it still holds with your newer customers. So that's that's how you make this progress. I once heard a, a sales coach who said, you know, everybody tells you to learn from failure, but we should learn from success. We should learn from what works and try to do more of that. Forget about what doesn't work. That's um You'll have so many things that don't work, but when you find things that do, that's where you should put your focus. That's where you need to magnify things. Bring the metal detector and search for a common denominator. <laughs> Very nice. Where do you see most companies failing or making mistakes and trying to achieve, in quotes, achieve product market? First of all, many companies think they have product market fit when they just see initial signals of success. And that's not the case. And that the problem is that they feel, okay, we're good. We found it. We can focus our efforts on growing the company because the foundation really works. And what happens at this point is that it, it usually when you were able to succeed, right? So you do have a few success stories, but it's not necessarily sustainable. A sustainable success would be when you have a good playbook that says, this is my profile. When you give me leads of that profile, I know how to convert them consistently into happy paying customers. But many companies see initial signals and then they start um, just bringing more leads into the funnel. And what that does is that your funnel is clogged because you don't know how to convert them. You waste a lot of good leads because you don't, you don't know how to make them happy customers and there is only one opportunity to make a first impression. And also, it usually brings people from various profiles and then what you have doesn't necessarily serve them. Maybe these are profiles that you would be able to get to later, later on down the road, but they might need something else. It usually, I see this happening when things don't work. So kind of the CEO says, okay, I, I don't care. Let's bring in whatever company or whatever lead we can. Let's bring as many people in because I, I want to sell. And if I don't have a pipeline, I can't sell. But if you fill your pipeline with random people, of course, it's always random, but with various profiles that your product doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily fit to serve, it wouldn't help you. You will just be chasing 
very different profiles simultaneously. Your R&D is going to be extremely busy with uh, serving very different needs and always chasing the next big thing without even knowing that this is actually going to be big. It's just the person that happened to, uh, to come down your pipeline. So that's one problem. I think also many people focus too much on the product side, on what we build, and forget the why should people even care, where, where it meets them, and then you deliver a lot. You have a lot of, uh, if, if you want to focus on time to market, the, the machine works. You have a lot of output, but it's going to be very difficult to reach any outcome with that because the dots aren't connected and it doesn't necessarily make sense. And another problem is you understand that you need to meet the market and you understand that you need to learn from that all the time and that it's not necessarily that whatever you're going to deliver is going to work and you always have to refine and rework things. And some people take it to an extreme saying that it almost doesn't matter what you do. The most important thing is to do trial and error. So we're just going to try everything and something works. And again, that's like, it's called spray and pray. It, it doesn't, it doesn't yield usually the results that, that you want to yield. It's true that you need to go with trial and error, but it shouldn't be blind trial and error. You want to do smart trial and error that at least you understand why a certain experiment has a chance to work. You should have... Hypothesis and theory yeah. behind it. I'm assuming that people with this and that background need more of that. And that, for example, this, uh, this example about the chief security officer and their background, thinking that you're testing is probably how you talk about the solution and not even your product. The product might be the same, but that's also something to test, like to go and see what peach works better for a certain profile. But you wouldn't even go and try it if you don't know what you're trying to test here. When building a product, uh, teams, whether these are be the engineers, quality assurance engineers, designers need a certain level of clarity. And what, in your opinion, is the right amount of clarity? What should be the level of detail and uh, time horizons for the roadmap or any other tool that outlines what the team will work on? Could you recommend any specific tools, strategies? A good roadmap starts with a strategy and the team needs to understand the strategy. That exact thing that, uh, that we talked about, so even saying things like, we have an assumption that this segment is good for us. So in the coming, in the foreseeable future, we're gonna focus on succeeding, trying to succeed with them. We're also going to um, maintain the existing customers that we have and want to make sure that they don't churn. So these are the big things that we're going to focus on. No details at this point, no um, complexities, just explaining in simple terms, what are we trying to do here and why it's important. The, the roadmap and the strategy need to tell a story. A story has a few uh, benefits. First of all, people remember stories and it's, it's just easier to understand what we're trying to do when the story is clear and coherent. And second, you can tell if a story makes sense or not, which again brings you to uh, challenge your own assumptions and see if you're, you're going uh, the right direction. So building that story isn't simple, but you want to get to a point where the story itself is simple and, and everybody should get it. If you need to communicate one thing to the company, it's much more important to communicate that high-level story than the details of the actual plan and which feature is going to be delivered when, uh, to be delivered when. Um, another tool is to clarify the goals. Many times companies define their goals in terms of revenue. So for example, our next year's goal is this and that, air power but it's usually not enough. There, is, there are so many assumptions behind that number. Some of them are assumptions regarding why it's important. Maybe this number is important because we suspect that, or not suspect, because we foresee that at this point in time, we are going to need to raise another funding round and we must demonstrate you know, triple, triple, double, double numbers to be able to, to raise that kind of money or to be well positioned for, for a certain uh, amount of funding. And that's how we came up with that number. So some of the assumptions are just the background. 
But the other side of assumptions are assumptions about how we're going to get to that revenue. Because most startups are expecting to get to that revenue with, with very specific assumptions that are usually untold. For example, like to, to an, an extreme example would be nobody expects to make that revenue from selling ice cream. Typically, maybe there is a, somewhere a startup that that's exactly what they're expecting to do, but most companies don't, right? So they want to do it with their core technology. They want to do it with a certain relation to the customer profile that they have today. They have some assumptions about how big do they need or want each um, contract or purchase to be. Are we building a company that does many small sales or a few large sales, or maybe we need to create some kind of mixture between them. How much of this is expected to come from new customers? Are those new customers of the exact same profile that we already know how to sell to, or are these an expansion and a, a new type of profile? Um, all of these discussions are usually either hidden or just not happening at all. But when you start diving into these, you find that the goals might not even be related to revenue. So for example, maybe your real goal, let's say quarterly goal, is not to get to revenue. It's to get an initial signal that people have interest in your product, not just in your solution. For example, the KPIs for that would be very different from revenue. And, and they could be a little bit more qualitative than quantitative. It could be happy customers. Right? What are what are happy customers? How would you know if they're happy? I let startups even go with we can tell for each customer if they're happy or not. But once you understand that this is what you're after, the entire discussion changes. These strategic explanations need to go to every employee of the company. And it's a story that you have to repeat over and over again. If uh, our listeners have kids, they probably know that. You know, when a kid listens to a story, you read them a story, you finish, and then they want to go at it. You need to over-communicate this. There is almost no amount of you repeating yourself in terms of telling this story that is going to be too much. They need to hear it again and again and again and again. And of course, your story evolves over time. So um, you, can, you can also then explain, you know, three months ago, we said that this is the most important thing. Here is what we learned during these th three months that led us to believe that we need to maybe lower the effort on that side and focus instead on something else. When you're able to explain it, it also makes it easier for everyone to embrace change. Because even though change could be frequent, it's, um, it's a change that they can understand, understand why it's done. And it also, by the way, demonstrates your leadership. I remember when I was head of product at eBay, eBay and PayPal were still together. And uh, then Carl Icahn started um, buying eBay stock and uh, vouched for separating eBay and PayPal. And I remember um, there, was a, there was a meeting with John Donahoe. He visited Israel. There was an all hands in Israel. And he said, people asked about that. And he said, I believe that eBay and PayPal should stick together for, for these reasons and explain his thinking. Now, we all know how that ended, but he was a very, very good leader. Maybe still is, but I haven't seen him in a while. Um, but, but this was really a moment of the highest leadership possible, because when the decision was different, he faced us and just said, you know, I told you a few months ago that I believe that eBay and PayPal should be together for these reasons. Here is what I learned. And this is why now I'm agreeing that separation is better. And, and you should know that this is an informed decision and not just, you know, I woke up one morning and uh, decided to go for it. It instills so much confidence in people to know that it was well thought of and, and they can, you know, he took responsibility for changing his mind. He explained why. I think it's uh, quite difficult to uh, pick the right level of complexity or uh, whether it's high level or low level 
of outcome. Some people tend to go really high level with the definition of outcomes or objectives, desired outcomes or objectives, meaning they go up the, to the level of revenue. Some people go really to, to the level of detail and figure out those like how deep do you want to go with the objectives or high how level they want to be. You want to you want to keep them. I think it's tricky for many people, especially doing it for the first time. Because, the, uh, for example, some of the things that need to change within the year, there's an argument that, well, ultimately that leads to higher revenue and we're doing it, we're chasing revenue. So let's go with that outcome as this is actually what we want to obtain. I mean, there's a temptation uh, in many people to go just as high level as possible and leave as much flexibility for the people or freedom to, to execute on that. You mentioned that uh, you want to explain the change so that the uh, objectives uh, provide clarity and they explain change. Would that be the criterion for sort of making sure that you set the right outcomes, you get the, the right amount of clarity for the team uh, to understand what's happening, what's expected of everybody here? Would that be the one criterion for that? Uh, that it's explainable to um, you pick the right level of detail. I would say it's a, it's a must-have criterion, probably not the only one. And as a leader, you probably want to make sure that you can explain it first to yourself. If you cannot explain it to yourself, then how can you expect other people to, to understand it? Yeah. And also, you know, you mentioned the right level of details. First of all, a good strategy should start from the goals and give the right context and and basically say this is what we're trying to do here but also include a high level plan not a plan in in terms of specific deliverables and timelines but you know there is a reason the roadmap actually contains the word map it's like planning a trip on a map there is a certain round route that you want to take and you decide to go from that road and not from the other road. It's not about, are we going to get to that road at 5 a.m. in the morning or when exactly? It's about the path itself. And you need to be able to explain the path in a way that makes sense and explain why you chose that path over the other path. We decided to go from the road that, that is this, with a scenic view, even, it's gonna be, even though it's gonna be a longer trip, because we're here to have fun and we want to see uh, beautiful things, right? Um, on, on, on the same trip, you could say that at this point, we decided to skip the scenic view because otherwise we wouldn't be able to get to the large city on time to see whatever. Both choices are valid and are fine, but you need to be able to decide and you need to be able to explain this is the road. This is the path that we're going to take. So for example, our path is to first start with a few um, smaller customers. And, and then as we have a solid market share within the small company segment, we're going to go to uh, more established companies, for example. And there should be a reason for that. You can go, I have examples of companies that decided to go this way or the other way. Some companies decided to start with small like uh, with small uh, customers and then grow. Other companies decided to start as super ultra extra premium and then from there go to everybody else. Um, so each choice is valid as long as you understand the choice that you're making. And in general, since I said that you need to tell a story, I think it's important. I, I don't like numeric goals that are standalone. It's very problematic. I've seen people doing the wrong things to satisfy these goals, not, not because they're, they're, they don't care, not because they're not capable, but because that was the guidance that they got. This is the goal. Go and do whatever you, you can to meet that goal. But what you can do to meet that goal sometimes would meet that goal, but would miss other goals that were untold and unspoken and could totally ruin the company. So that's why, for example, I prefer OKRs over KPIs because the, the objective part should give you the context and puts the KPIs as means to see if you're getting there. But the thing that you're trying to get to is not the KPI, is the objective 
that you, are a you should be able to explain, again, in detail, in a way that makes sense why this is the right objective and what is it that we're actually trying to do here. Trying to sort of describe the world or, or model the world only with KPIs is bound to fail because the world is much more complex than that. And it doesn't matter, even if you have, you add as many KPIs as you want, the world and success are not just a bunch of numbers. There are many, many other things there. Now I'd like to talk about your uh, product leadership coaching. Um, can you share more about the, the, the services you provide, uh, including some success story from your product leadership coaching? Sure. So I primarily work with two audiences, speak about product market fit. My profiles have two different profiles. So one is I work with startup founders and I help them on their journey to product market fit. Usually since my background is, is uh, product management development and then product management. So I, I realized that I cannot say the word product to founders because what they think about is immediately the output. The, the deliverable at the end of the sprint. But with everything we discussed, there is so much more than the product itself in terms of getting to product market fit. So I started talking about product market fit, not even product strategy, because not everybody relates to that term, uh, but essentially being their advisor and their coach and helping them navigate that journey more s smartly uh, and knowingly rather than just going with a blind trial and error. And then the other side is working with product leaders and helping them succeed. So when, when you become a product leader, not just a, a manager of product managers, but when you truly have leadership responsibilities in the product domain, you must connect to that side of business goals and alignment across management and all of that. And that's not always um, a trivial leap for people to make. So I do one-on-one -on -one coaching and I have a group um, program here in Israel currently called the CPO Bootcamp. Uh, and I, I give you know lectures to product teams and, and management teams on some of these um, advanced uh, topics. And um, I always take a holistic approach because we talk about, we talked a lot about strategy, but essentially this podcast is about leadership. And leadership is much more than just thinking strategically. It's about being able to work with a team to get there to where you want to be. So I always combine both teaching, which is giving the theory and sort of how you should approach things with advisory. I think together with the people what the right approach is for them, what is the right strategy for, for a certain thing or, or team structure or what function they need to hire next. And then the other side is coaching, which is essentially how it's a little bit more about the soft skills and about how you want to manage certain situations to actually make sure that you get to the outcome that you want and not just define a great roadmap, but that doesn't get you anywhere. So that's my, that's my approach. And essentially since product is so key to, to, uh, tech companies, when a product leader succeeds, the company succeeds. So for example, a startup that I worked with um, got to about $2 million ARR within 18 months of launch. They had massive trial and error within the process, but they navigated it smartly. So they did fewer errors or, or avoided avoidable errors within, within the process. Um, another company told me that it was only when they started working with me that they, the pivot that they did actually succeeded. They did a number of pivots before that, but um, this was the only one that, uh, that actually succeeded. I also see a, a massive impact on relationships. So for example, you know, pro product leadership or product management in general is a role at the heart of almost any conflict you have in the company. It's like, there are so many relationships that they need to maintain and they need to work well and so many points of view to, to keep in their mind and be mindful of. So in my coaching, I work a lot in these relationships and, and seeing things from the other people's point of view, which is a valid point of view. And this leads to increased collaboration. For example, um, one of my coaches recently told me that she 
was able to convince the VPRND to start working in squads where he refused it, like vocally, was not even willing to hear about it before. I have another person who came into my program with very intense relationship with sales, and they were able to, to convert that into productive and even uh, create collaborations um, because they all want the product to, to succeed. And also, you know, create cr clarity in areas that are not necessarily easy. For example, there was a company that I started working with. Uh, I worked with a VP of product and they started talking about product strategy and all that and said, yeah, 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 yeah. we need to, to figure out product strategy. But for now, we're building a platform and the MVP needs to be out within a few months. So we need to plan the MVP. And I started asking, okay, but why? What are we trying to achieve? Why do you need a platform? You already have a working product. What are we trying to do here? It turns out that this VP was on vacation for two weeks. And when he came back, the CEO said, we're building a platform. And that was more or less everything he knew about why we're building this platform. So talking about being able to explain things that was definitely missing. And we did a lot of work with the CEO and amongst ourselves to figure out why should someone lead the company to a platform? Like if they're right, let's assume that their intuition is right and we should accept it as is. What were they thinking? Why is platform the right thing for the company? And we came up with a certain theory and this guy worked with, with a CEO and eventually presented it in a management meeting. And the, the presentation went well, but the CEO left the meeting saying, well, I heard nothing new here, which is kind of disappointing. But then after the meeting ended, all the other people in the room came to the VP of product and said, thank you. We're finally able to understand why he's leading us towards a platform and what is it that he's actually trying to do. So even though people wouldn't always tell you that, that you, know, you brought order and clarity into the world, there are other people who might. Your career transitions from roles such as developer and solution architect to senior product management roles and eventually founding your own academy. Uh, what were some of the major learnings and challenges you faced during these transitions? So I think I'm, I made two major changes in my career. I started as a developer and then a team lead and development manager, and I loved it. I loved, I loved to date, I loved technology and I loved management and I, I thought this would be the path. I would be VPRND one day, but since I didn't work with product in those roles, some of the product thinking was always on me. And in my last um, development leadership role, I joined a new company to lead a new team. And the VP of R&D told me, okay, so this is what we need you to do. This is the team. These are the resources that you have. This is the product that you need to build. And I started asking why, and what, why do they want to build this product and what, where they're taking it. And I went to do some market research. And then I came back to my boss and said, um, you know, the product that you're, you want me to build isn't going to do the trick, isn't going to get you to where you want to be as a company. So we should reconsider. He was very surprised. Um, but I, I was able to convince him and we changed the project and the product and, and it was a great success. And after that role, they came to me and suggested that I move into what eventually was called the solution architect. They said something like, we want to move you to a role outside of R&D, help the business sell the product better and help R&D understand what they need to build. That was the definition. It was very early at least in Israel, in terms of product management, they didn't call it product management. Um, and I thought I would do it, you know, for a year or so, and then I'll come back to R&D because that's where I belong and go back to my path to become VP R&D. But that together with my MBA that I just started, and again, didn't start it in order to make a career change. I just fell in love with this world. And my, my MBA is focused on entrepreneurship and strategy. And I learned there that, you know, the business jungle really is still a jungle, but there are roads in that jungle. And if you just look at it from the right perspective, you can find those roads and it makes your entire journey a lot easier. And that's when I realized that I don't want to go back to R&D anymore. And it surprised me. I needed to, to recalculate my route. Um, and that's how I landed eventually in product management. But there was, I was open to, to try something new 
I didn't think it would become a career change, uh, but I tried it and I loved it. And I think the same happened with Infinify and, and the Academy. I, I tried it for a while, not because I thought this is what I was going to do forever, but um, because I needed something different after over 20 years of working really without any long vacation. Um, I needed uh, something to change and I thought it was going to be temporary, but I really found that this is where I bring most value and I really love it. So I made it, uh, made, made a choice to, to make that. So, so first of all, be willing to be surprised and, and open your mind. I think that's a major learning. Another thing is that you need to force yourself to love uncertainty because uncertainty is going to be there whether you like it or not. And if you, you navigate, navigate your professional life trying to make it as stable as possible, you might be missing on, on a lot of opportunities out there. And also at a certain level of leadership, it's going to hurt your performance. If you're a leader at the highest levels, you have to be able to make decisions in an uncertain world because that's just the world that we live in and that's the kind of decisions that people expect you to, to make as a leader. No, no matter how much research is behind those decisions, there's always uncertainty. Yes, absolutely. You, you cannot eliminate that. Thank you very much. No, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure. Great insights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Better Tech Leadership powered by BrainHub. Follow Les Schick on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Better Tech Leadership newsletter.